You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. But what about those small business masterminds who succeed at making their money work harder? They do that by having a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, which now earns 5% annual percentage yield. Making your money work as hard as you do? That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com. I want to ask you something. Uh-huh. What do you think a financial conflict of interest is? Do you have any idea? Um, when two people both are like share a bank account and they want to spend money on something but the other person doesn't. That's a good thought. What if I told you it describes when powerful people, like people who sit on the Supreme Court, have money or other things they own, and it might affect how they, they rule on things? I don't think that's correct, and I don't think that should happen. This is Crash Course, a podcast about business, political, and social disruption, and what we can learn from it. I'm Tim O'Brien. And that was my son, Cooper, helping me set up today's crash course, the Supreme Court versus greed. Consider this. The Supreme Court justices get lucrative book deals, $2 million for Amy Coney Barrett, and $3 million for Sonia Sotomayor. They get Lux travel junkets and the freedom to invest in almost anything they want, all with limited and forgiving disclosures. And one justice, Clarence Thomas, has routinely offered evidence of some of the court's most glaring conflicts of interest. ProPublica recently revealed a gold mine of gifts and financial favors Thomas has received from a prominent Texas businessman, Harlan Crow. Thomas also has a spouse who makes a living advocating for conservative causes that have also found their way to the court. How disinterested can the justices be ruling on weighty matters like corporate power, business competition, and the future of democracy when their own wallets are involved. To help us figure out the court's ethical collisions, I invited Gabe Roth to join us. Gabe is the founder and executive director of Fix the Court, a nonpartisan advocacy group pushing for various court reforms, including new ethics guidelines. Okay, Gabe, I wanted to come in at a 35,000-foot level first (laughs) to just ask you, why should we even care about the financial dealings of Supreme Court justices? They're stewards of the law, after all. Can't they be trusted to manage their money in ways that don't collide with their professional duties? No, we can't trust the justices just to be off on their own without having any sort of ethical benchmark. The justices are human beings, just like you and me and anyone listening to this podcast. I think that the members of Congress have put upon themselves some strict ethics rules and The executive branch has some fairly strict ethics rules as well. It's just the judiciary branch with the Supreme Court at the top that doesn't have the same type of travel, gift, outside income, reimbursement type rules 
that in this day and age, it makes no sense, especially given how much power they have. Forget about the reason that we're talking, which is the Justice Thomas travel scandal, which I'm sure we'll get to. But in this day and age where they have just such outsized power, who can vote? Who wins presidential elections? Who can get health care? Who can live or die? Where we pray? All these things. Of course, they should have to follow certain rules that show that they're above board ethically. Makes sense. You know, the presidency is free from most of the conflict of interest guidelines that govern the rest of the federal government. And the argument behind that was you could not come up with a reasonable set of ethics standards that wouldn't end up hamstringing any president from being able to carry out his or her duties. And over the years, Justice Roberts, the chief justice of the Supreme Court, has come up with a similar argument for the court, that it shouldn't be constrained by these things because it would get in the way. Look, there definitely are a few rules that presidents have to follow in terms of you know financial disclosure, the emoluments clause in the Constitution that they can't get rich off of their position. But I think that we've seen that, well, first of all, I mean, the judicial scandals are just exploding, right? It's, this is not just, you know, a one-time thing where a justice is getting on a yacht or a private And we'll, and we'll get to those. We'll enumerate a bunch of those, which I want to. <laughs> but I just was philosophically wanted to kind of explore this idea of, is it constraining actually to have to have tighter ethics guidelines? I don't think so, because it's not that what is being requested from the justices is that difficult. I mean, look, and there are people that want to impeach Thomas, which is never going to happen, and remove him, which is never going to happen, and they want him to resign, which is never going to happen. You know, I think that for the people who are living in a, in a world where Congress is divided fairly evenly, what people are talking about reform-wise are rules that would not necessarily constrain behavior, right? The justices would still be able to have friends. They'd still be able to go on vacations. They still wouldn't have to pay for certain vacations. It's just there's a certain level of luxury after which to the average person, it seems that there's no way that there's no quid pro quo involved. Like just the luxury of certain gifts and perks just implies that there is some sort of dishonest dealings. And and I think it's just, you know, it's the smell test. It's the history of corruption in the United States across all three branches, both at the federal and the state level. And, you know, when I'm looking at the proposals here to try to change things, no one is saying like, Let's make it so the justices have to live this monastic lifestyle. I don't think that's what folks are saying. I think the folks are saying, like, we need more disclosure and we need to make sure that when these super luxe things are happening, that you can't just say, oh, I'm friends with the guy and that's why I don't have to report it. And the issue of financial conflicts of interest gets tangible when we talk about them through examples. And I want to identify some of those in which the conflict and the problem of the conflict is really clear and we'll have to start of course, today with Clarence Thomas. Clarence Thomas took a number of luxury trips through the good graces of Harlan Crow. What was your first take when you saw that it was revealed that he had gone on any number of pricey trips on Crow's dime and that Crow has also given money to causes favored by Clarence Thomas or to groups affiliated with Clarence Thomas? The first time that I saw that I was shocked, but also not that surprised because we knew that this relationship existed. To me, I didn't really understand the scope or the opulence that was involved. It's one thing to get a $6,400 bronze statue from a guy. It's a totally different thing to be given 
potentially million dollars in free vacations over a number of years. And on top of it, to have the property that your mother is living in, Clarence Thomas's mother, yes, that That's presumably were purchased at above market rates and benefited Thomas's own relationship with his mother as well as his wallet. She still lives there. Correct. Harlan Crow said he was doing it to set up some sort of a nonprofit group. A museum for Thomas's childhood home or something yes, like that. Yes, but mom is still living there. That's also a fairly egregious and startling conflict, I think. It is. And that, to me, is the clearest violation of federal law that we have here, right? I think that the federal law says that you need to report any sort of trips or gifts that you get, except there's a personal hospitality exemption. If you read the law, the personal hospitality exemption does not include transportation. So I think at least the private plane trip should have been reported, which is a violation. But even if you can sort of squint really hard and construe the personal hospitality exemption on a property and a plane could be a property, you got to jump through, you know, do all sorts of mental gymnastics to figure out how those omissions were not violations of the federal disclosure law. But it is very clear in the disclosure law that any real estate transaction that is greater than $1,000 must be reported on the disclosure. And it's not there. I mean, it falls off the disclosure about seven or eight years ago for reasons that are not described. And, you know, if you're looking at it as a neutral observer, you're like, oh, a couple of lots in Liberty County, maybe the bank repossessed them or something. But no, that's that was my assumption. I was again wrong. But you know, that to me is a clear violation of law. And there needs to be some follow up from the Justice Department on that. And tell our audience briefly about the federal disclosure law and, and how that governs disclosure by the Supreme Court justices. Yeah, it's a really interesting story. I mean, it really goes back, the disclosure law was signed by Jimmy Carter in 1978, but some of its genesis into a decade prior at the Supreme Court, because there were two Supreme Court justices that were taking in outside money and it became a scandal. So pretty soon after that, then Chief Justice Berger had his colleagues release details of their outside income, any money that they received in the previous year. They put it in a report starting in 1970. That went on for a few years. And then after Watergate, Congress got on the ball and said, look, we need a, an entire government-wide disclosure law that says what your investments are, what you're buying, what you're selling, any outside income, any spousal jobs, any large debts that you have, and any gifts, travel reimbursements, free travel for food, transportation, entertainment, lodging. And that all has to be listed on a report that's due every May 15th. So the new ones are going to be due soon. And those are going to be coming out, hopefully in June. And it's a wealth of information that shows, you know, okay, this justice went to this place with this person. And then you can say, okay, did they have any cases before the court? Is there any potential conflicts? It's just a really good way. I mean, they could easily be more detailed and we can get into that, but it's a good way of doing sort of basic accountability. So since 1981, January 12th, 1981, the justices have effectively sanctioned the financial disclosure process, and they've been filling them out. Obviously, not all of them are filling it out completely as they should, as we mentioned, but they've been filling it out every year since. You know, this raises a couple of things. One is the obvious reason we do this is because any financial relationship with someone else outside the court may affect impartiality or rulings when matters come before the court that affects those individuals. It's just a eons old definition of why financial conflicts of interest are problematic. But secondly, all of this involves really is disclosure for the sake of disclosure. There's not a larger architecture around this that either penalizes them or actually precludes them 
from engaging in certain activities. It's a very narrow set of rules. And there is a conflict of interest regimen that affects everyone in the federal judiciary except for the Supreme Court, right? Yeah. There's a code of conduct and then there's a Judicial Conduct and Disability Act. So just real quick, the code of conduct, the origins of it date back more than a century, but changed many times from the 20s to the 70s. And then in the early 70s, the Judicial Conference, the policymaking body, worked with the ABA and officially codified it for the lower court judges. And so that code says very clearly judges should not, their impartiality shouldn't be questioned. They shouldn't engage in extracurricular activities that impugn their integrity or the integrity of the judiciary. They shouldn't engage in political activities. They shouldn't engage in fundraising activities and on and on. They should treat all comers into their courtroom with decorum. And if you flout one of these rules, there are consequences if you're a lower court judge. The Judicial Conduct and Disability Act, so that was 1980, that was a few years after Watergate and after the code and after the financial disclosure law went into effect. That law was signed in 1980 by President Carter. That basically allows anybody, the first two words of the law are any person. So anyone in the United States that sees a federal judge, not a Supreme Court justice, but one of the 2,500 lower court federal judges doing something that impugns the integrity of the judiciary, they can file a complaint against that judge and they go through a process. It's this adjudicatory process. There's fact finding. You can even hire outside investigators to look into the behavior of a judge. If a judge is found to have committed misconduct, there are all sorts of punishments, censure, reprimand, public and private. You can have certain cases taken away from you. You have to go to sensitivity training, anti-harassment training. And it's because these punishments are not doled out that frequently, it's pretty embarrassing when you have to make some amends or do have some restitution, it becomes a major national story. It's, it doesn't happen that often. Well, and yet none of this applies to the nine Supreme Court justices. Why? So it's a sort of age-old question of separation of powers, judicial independence. Well, I think so two reasons. One is the theory is that because the Constitution says Congress creates the lower courts, then Congress can make rules for the adjudication of complaints that exist within the lower courts. So there is one Supreme Court. I mean, that's the quote from Article 3, Section 1. There is one Supreme Court. And then later on, it says Congress can create the lower court. So the theory is that it can make the rules for the lower court. So nothing in the law mentions the Supreme Court. And it was understood that the Supreme Court sort of sits above the architecture that was created by Congress, both from a structural perspective in terms of how many lower courts there are, and also in terms of how a complaint process might work. The other thing is, okay, let's say that this process included the justices. The justices are all equal. Like I know there's been a lot of like misconceptions in the last few weeks about, okay, the chief justice has to step in and do X. He's first among equals. And, and it would be a sort of an awkward situation and not one, especially knowing the personalities of the justices. I couldn't really imagine like eight justices sanctioning Clarence Thomas and how would that even like what could they do like what would they like they can't lower his salary that's in the constitution they can't take cases away from him they can't call up the house I mean I guess they could call up the house and say hey impeach him but like they're not going to they have no internal process for reprimands exactly and also what's so interesting about this conversation is that a lot of the proposals that have been made in response to this it's like okay we, we're not even talking about an internal process for reprimand I was looking at a bill today that Senator Murphy came out with, the Democrat from Connecticut that says, okay, we want there to be a Supreme Court code of conduct. And the second part of the bill says, okay, we're not going to make you part of the complaint process. Just create some office somewhere in the court where 
there is the possibility that complaints can be investigated and there's a report that comes out at the end of the year that says these are the issues related to ethics that the public brought to the court's attention. Like no mention of reprimand, no mention of punishment, just like these are the issues the American people are thinking about and they're bristling at that, right? I mean, the justices are bristling at that. So we have a long ways to go. Well, the other thing that might be useful as a self-governing principle would be the concept of embarrassment or shame. But Clarence Thomas even lets us down on that front, when this whole thing with Harlan Crow blew into the open, Thomas was quiet, I think, for a day or two. And then suddenly what came from him and from the court was, well, Harlan Crow is a friend. And under our disclosure guidelines, I'm allowed to accept trips from friends. So no problem here. And you sort of wonder how many paupers Clarence Thomas is friends with if you know they can't get him on a yacht or get him on a plane or give a bunch of money to Yale or buy property from his mother or from him. And again, to me, it just erodes confidence that the justices take these issues seriously enough that they don't come out with a probably legalistically acceptable response, but one that is neither ethically or morally very credible. We're asking for Let's start with the bare minimum here, right? Again, I mean, the serious proposals in Congress, the serious proposals from groups, no one's talking about taking power away necessarily from the justices or changing the way that they hear cases or, you know, putting them in a boat off the in the Chesapeake Bay, which Congress could theoretically do. It's just like, let's put you on par with the rest of the judiciary and with the other top officials and the other two branches. And... That doesn't seem like too big of an ask at all. All right, Gabe, speaking of money, I want to take a short break to hear from one of our sponsors, and then we'll come right back to you. Success is more than the final destination. It's a path you take one step at a time. It's discipline. It's teamwork. And it's the drive and passion inside of us that comes before all recognition. It's what Stiefel's been doing for over 130 years. Quietly, yet strategically, Stiefel's become one of the fastest-growing wealth management and investment banking firms in the country. Our financial advisors go beyond traditional wealth management to provide clients with direct access to one of the industry's largest equity research franchises and a leading middle market investment bank. Because success is the drive it takes to keep climbing, the passion to keep investing, the best of each of us made better by the best in all of us. And that is where success meets success. Start your journey at Stiefel.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. Athletes, actors, artists. But what about the people behind the scenes? You know, the ones who make it all happen. The lighting engineers, the sideline photographers, the caterers. They're small business masterminds. And if there's one thing they have in common, it's making their money work harder. That's why they have a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, where they are now earning a generous 5% annual percentage yield. Yes, 5% APY. Making your money work as hard as you do, that's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. We're back with Gabe Roth of Fix the Court, and we're talking about the Supreme Court and financial conflicts of interest. 
Gabe, on just one quick fix for some of these financial conflicts of interest problems, should justices just be forbidden from owning individual stocks? A lot of business journalists, for example, myself included, are <laughs> forbidden from owning individual stocks. We can own funds and other instruments. Why not just apply that rule to the court? Yeah, absolutely. I think that should be a rule. Last year, a law was passed that required judges and justices stock transactions details of which to be posted online within 45 days, which is the Stock Act. And the justices and lower court judges were actually not part of the Stock Act when it became law in 2012. So we just got the judges and justices added to the Stock Act. But we're learning that even though there's this database, and even though there's this big Wall Street Journal expose about judicial conflicts of interest in stock, the judges and well, forget the justices for now, but the judges are not selling as much stock as they are buying. It's pretty even. So, you know, I had hoped that after the law was passed, after the database came out, all these judges would say, oh, hey, I'm going to sell off all my stock. I'd see the conflicts that the Wall Street Journal brought out in their piece. And I think I'm going to go sell all my stocks. That has not happened. So because of that, I am more of the view now, now that we have the evidence that, yes, banning individual stock ownership, both for members of Congress, which, you know, that had gained momentum last year, but sort of fell away. But yeah, I think the justices should be included and lower court judges should be included as well. And there should be some news about that in a few weeks. So stay tuned. I'm thinking of Chief Justice John Roberts and a big block of Microsoft stock that he used to own. I think he disposed of some of that. Let's start with Roberts and, and just consider that as a case study. Oh, yeah. I mean, it, it, to me, it's ridiculous that justices own stock, right? There are a hundred different ways, especially nowadays, to be engaged in the market without owning stock in individual companies. And Roberts owned quarter million, half a million dollars of Microsoft stock for the first 10 years he was on the court. It made no sense. And Microsoft is not only a litigant before the Supreme Court all the time, but Microsoft files amicus brief, friends of the court brief. So they're appearing in other ways. And there's no law, right, that says, okay, if, if it's Microsoft versus Doe and you own Microsoft, you have to recuse. But if it's Intel versus Doe and you own Microsoft and Microsoft files a brief in favor of the Intel position, you don't have to recuse, which is a ridiculous and indefensible law. And not only that, Microsoft got smart. They stopped sending briefs in Intel cases and in other tech cases. They had they just spent money and to have a third party trade association that they were supporting send in cases and, you know, Intel and Oracle and Google and all these other cases that would benefit them and other tech companies if they won. So to me, it's not defensible. Neil Gorsuch, when he was nominated to be a judge in the Tenth Circuit in the mid 2000s, sold all of his individual stock. I think Clarence Thomas has never owned individual stock. He might have owned one company. I think he might have owned like Berkshire shares for a few years. But Justice Ginsburg sold her stock pretty soon after joining the court. Chief Justice Roberts actually sold two stocks a few weeks ago. So now he's down to two companies, Thermo Fisher Scientific and Lamb Research. Okay. And this will bring us back to Clarence Thomas again. But should justices recuse themselves from matters that intersect with their spouse's professional pursuits? I think that depends. I mean, I hate to give the lawyerly and I'm not even a lawyer, but I guess I play one on podcasts. I would say it depends. I think that, you know, there's a discrete difference between, say, Jane Roberts, who's a recruiter and happens to have recruited people who may work at firms who then have cases before the court. It's sort of this like A to B to C relationship that was recently reported on versus something where a spouse has a particular knowledge or facts of the case. So when you're talking about the attempt by Arizona Republicans to overturn the election results there, 
Ginny was lobbying for Republicans in Arizona to do just that. So that to me is a little bit more direct in terms of either the actual content or per the federal law. You're supposed to recuse even if a justice's, quote, impartiality might reasonably be questioned. You and I are reasonable. Well, at least I am, I think. (laughs) (laughs) You and I are reasonable people. And I think that we would both say that there is clearly a potential for conflict in the Ginny Thomas example, given her involvement with the electors situation in Arizona. And well beyond that, Ginny Thomas was employed by the Heritage Foundation, a conservative group that engages in activism around issues it cares about. We know now that she was texting with Donald Trump's chief of staff, Mark Meadows, prior to the January 6th insurrection, raising alarm bells with Meadows that somehow the election might have been stolen from Trump. Clarence Thomas has had to rule on a number of things that affect Donald Trump directly, including whether or not to release his tax returns to Congress. And presumably, some of the litigation around January 6th may eventually end up in the Supreme Court as well. And Jenny Thomas signed that letter saying that the January 6th committee was treasonous. So Correct. Correct. So she is this sort of hornet's nest of issues that conflict with the integrity and the life and the domain of the Supreme Court. Shouldn't Clarence Thomas, her husband, stay a mile away from anything that affects anything that she's been doing? Yeah, I think in a large part, Yes. I'm a little bit more sympathetic to some of the Heritage Foundation work because Heritage was not a litigant before the court. Ginny didn't work on any of the amicus briefs that Heritage put before the court. And Heritage was not the only group that was lobbying or agitating for, just to give an example, the repeal of Obamacare or the invalidation of Obamacare by the Supreme Court. But in terms of the scope of the amount of work that she has done that sort of can graft itself onto the work of the Supreme Court, it is unique. At the same time, it is, I think, completely reasonable to want her and any other Supreme Court spouse to be able to do their job insofar as they please, even if it's getting close to the point but not reaching it. But I think really, to me, it's just the various scopes around January 6th and trying to overturn the 2020 election that really hits at the heart of the recusal law, especially when even if you look further down in the recusal law, it says, A justice shall recuse when their or their spouse's interest might be impacted. We don't know who was paying Ginny Thomas to do this work. It's very possible that she was being paid to contact the Arizona. I mean, it's unclear, really, if she was paid or not. But maybe she was paid to text with Mark Meadows, try to reach out to the Arizona and Wisconsin electors and sign the letter about January 6th committee. So to me, I think because that word interest is later in the law, that to me also just gives more credence to this view that he should have recused in all January 6th related cases. Let's talk about some other conflicts of interest that come to mind for you. An interesting example comes up with Sotomayor, right? And booking big blocks of hotel rooms for her and her family members. Talk to me about that one. Yeah. So as justices do, and you know, we're getting into that season right now, they give talks or asked to give talks at commencements at universities. Justice Jackson actually was just announced as the commencement speaker for both BU law and American law towards the end of May. And so back in 2016, Justice Sotomayor was asked to be the commencement speaker at the University of Rhode Island, where someone close to her, I don't know if it's her godson, but someone close to her was graduating and she agreed But she did not put the trip on her annual financial disclosure, which, you know, justices make mistakes. It's one trip. Well, it turned out to be actually six trips that year that she forgot to put on her financial disclosure, which we'll get to. But 
With the Rhode Island trip, she was flown business class. She was given up to 11 hotel rooms at the nicest hotel in the state of Rhode Island. They purchased 150 of her books, which you know happens a lot when you go somewhere, but based on the royalty agreement, would have netted her several hundred, if not a thousand dollars. She had a motorcade taking her all around town to and from the airport. She got a robe and a collar thingy, a mortarboard. I mean, some of those things you can't hold against her, I think, like a motorcade. She's a justice on the Supreme Court. She gets a robe at an event. But when it's her and possibly a couple of other people traveling together and they're given a whole block of hotel rooms, presumably taking up an entire floor, it raises an eyebrow. It does. And it wasn't reported. Like, again, two things. One, it should be reported. And two... Under the disclosure law, if you were a member of Congress and you did the same thing that Sotomayor did, you would have to file a report 30 days after you got back from the trip that said exactly how much was spent on your hotel block, right? That's a big deal. The fact that we're not even getting numbers, it's very different if you're giving someone a burger at uh, Burger's Bar versus, you know, filet mignon and if you're staying at the Residence Inn versus the Ritz. So I think to me, you know, that sort of uh, was it a really potent example of how short the judiciary's disclosures law are compared to those in the other branches. Should the court, should members of the Supreme Court refuse to take speaking fees? Well, so, so okay, so there, hmm, that's tough because I probably would have answered this question differently a few years ago. In terms of sort of the larger question of should justices be flown certain places to give talks, I would have said, yeah, fine, great. We love seeing the justices in public. I think it's important for the American people to see justice in action and to understand what our judiciary does. I mean, like them or hate them, they're all nine smart, incredibly accomplished individuals. And I think everyone would learn from their lives stories. But in recent years, I've become really, really concerned with the frequency with which justices are going out and speaking solely to the home team. So Justice Barrett, when she leaves D.C., she's deeply conservative. She's going to Notre Dame. She's going to the McConnell Center at the University of Louisville. She's teaching at the Notre Dame program in London. Justice Kavanaugh is being paid by George Mason University, a deeply conservative university and the Antonin Scalia School of Law. Neil Gorsuch is being paid by George Mason's School of Law. Justice Alito was just in Rome, and his trip was paid for by the Religious Liberty Institute. Many of the justices were recently at the Federalist Society National Convention at Union Station in D.C. back in November. I think all the conservative justices besides Roberts were there. And then on the left, Justice Sotomayor has recently been at the American Constitution Society. So now I'm a little concerned, right? It wasn't this stark in the past. I mean, Justice Ginsburg definitely gave a lot of talks before the National Organization of Women and the Democratic Women's Leadership Council and what have you. And Scalia spoke to the Tea Party groups a couple of times and went to a few Koch brothers retreats. But I think you would always have a Kennedy or an O'Connor or a Breyer or a Stewart or a Stevens that would sort of speak to both sides or to more neutral sites. So that is happening, unfortunately, from my research, it appears to be happening less and less. And I just wish the justices would sort of see the writing on the wall, see the lack of trust that the American people has in them and actually do more, try to speak to either neutral or more ideologically heterogeneous audiences. They're supposed to cap their outside pay from non-SCOTUS-related activities at $30,000 annually, correct? Yeah, yeah. I think it's going to go up this year to maybe thirty-two. But, but, But you got to remember the exemption, which is book royalties. So that's how, you know, they're making buck. And, you know, all the different ways to earn money as a justice, I'm kind of okay with that. Like teaching, for example. 
So yeah, so teaching is, is capped at about, I think it's 31,000 for this year. And that's fine. They're the best, arguably some of the best legal minds in the country. And they're off for three months in the summer, right? The, you know, the old John Roberts quote, the only people in the country who get the summer off are school children in SCOTUS <laughs> justice, which is uh, something Roberts said 40 years ago when he was working in the Reagan Justice Department, because at the time the justices were complaining about their caseload and he was giving that rejoinder. And I have no problem that they're able to earn 30K for outside teaching. You know, I think it would be an incredible event to take a class. I mean, Justice Kavanaugh was just in London teaching uh, for Notre Dame and Justice Barrett is going there in a couple of weeks. You read some of the student comments or whatever, and it's like, it's life-changing for them. So, you know, good for them. But, you know, you mentioned book royalties. The book advances often are massive. For example, Amy Coney Barrett, before I think she even got sworn in as a Supreme Court justice, landed a major book deal. Again, yeah, we want smart, capable individuals to be on the federal bench. They are making a lot of money. If you're a lower federal court judge, like it's like 220. Circuit judge, it's like 240. SCOTUS, it's like 260, 280. That's a lot of money. Though significantly less than they'd make in the private sector, presumably. Many millions less than they would make in the private sector. Significantly less. Significantly less. And I don't want to be in a situation where the only people who in the future are judges and justices are people who are uber wealthy and can afford to be judges and justices. And again, a quarter million dollars is a ton of money, but in a capitalistic society, which we are thankfully, to your point, it's like a tenth of what they could be making on the open market. I'm okay with them trying to supplement that income via book royalties. I don't love the fact that the justices are going to like the conservative imprint of Penguin Books, like the Javelin Group is getting them a deal with the conservative imprint. Like, I don't love how they're sort of like putting on team colors for that section. But again, because they could be earning so much other money doing so many other things, I think that, you know, I'm okay with this. Gabe, I want to take one more break to hear from our sponsor, and then we'll come right back to you. Hi, I'm Ron Kraszewski, Chairman and CEO of Stiefel. Financial Advisors, if you're not growing your practice, you're losing market share. Stiefel is a growing, entrepreneurial, advisor-centric firm built for successful advisors like you. Imagine having the resources of the largest wirehouses and the support of the boutique shops, but none of the bureaucracy to get in the way of you serving your clients. At Stiefel, it's your business, your book, your clients. I always tell the advisors we're recruiting, I want you to come to Stiefel and double or triple your business. Most of them laugh and shake their heads, but I'm serious. Don't take it from me. Take it from Stiefel's number one finish in J.D. Power's 2023 U.S. Financial Advisor Satisfaction Study. So there's a reason why 148 financial advisors joined Stiefel last year. Come join us and find out why Stiefel is the firm where success meets success. Visit www.choosestifel.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. Athletes, actors, artists. But what about the people behind the scenes? You know, the ones who make it all happen. The lighting engineers, the sideline photographers, the caterers. They're small business masterminds. And if there's one thing they have in common, it's making their money work harder. That's why they have a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, where they are now earning a generous 5% annual percentage yield. Yes, 5% APY. Making your money work as hard as you do. That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. And we're back with Gabe Roth of Fix the Court. 
Gabe, we talked piecemeal about some different solutions to these various collisions and conflicts. You've proposed a number of them along the way. Lay out what you think would be a handy set of reforms that would clean up some of these problems that we're seeing. So first of all, I do think that the justices should be required to write and publish after a public comment period, a code of conduct for the Supreme Court. So they have an expectation of what their behavior should be, and the public has an expectation of what the justices' behavior should be. So I think that's number one. I think the second thing is the justices need to follow the same rules when it comes to travel, outside income, reimbursement, and gifts, and personal hospitality as the Senate and the House does. So that means having an ethics office approve certain trips 30 days before the trips happen. It means the sponsors sending in forms to the approving office so they know, okay, it's not some crazy junket where everyone's just going to goof off for a week. It's, you know, a three-day trip where we're going to talk about the jurisprudence of, I don't know, the death penalty or something. And then the justices themselves, after they return from the trip, would have to say within 30 days, instead of having one line on their annual disclosure report, which may or may not ever come out or comes out months or years later, instead they do the 30-day post-trip report that says, this is how much was spent on my lodging, this is how much was spent on my meals, this is how much was spent on my transportation. In addition, I would like to see, as I mentioned, more transparency around the public appearances of the justices. Like, it's ridiculous to me that the justices don't have, I mean, they have a press office, but they never tell us where they're going and when they're going there. Obviously, I don't need to know if they're going to visit their grandkids or something. But if they're speaking at a public university, just like when I worked for a governor, I put out a press release the morning before saying, hey, you know, the governor is going to be in Long Island tomorrow. This is when press avail is, and this is where you can set up your tripods or whatever. Justices should be doing the same thing. And to your other point, I think they should obviously be selling their stocks and be more cognizant of their conflicts or potential conflicts of interest. And, you know, I mean, the biggest reform for me is term limits on the court. And so 18 years is sort of the agreed upon conservative liberal, like nine justices, a new justice every two years, nine times two is 18. That means every presidential term, there would be two new justices. So there would be a constant churn. So I think that means the justices would want a more hue to the 50 yard line in their jurisprudence. So we're not having this constant ping pong. And then you would have ways of sort of having justices, you know, fade into the sunset. They would be life tenured on lower courts the rest of their lives. They just wouldn't be hearing cases on SCOTUS, a way to fade into the sunset. So we're not stuck with them for 40 years. You've pushed for other things like cameras in the courtroom and greater media access to the process of the court itself. And when we talked last year, I remember you feeling pretty optimistic about the possibility of court reforms coming through. How did that end up going from your perspective? A mixed bag. I mean, I think that we still have live streaming in the Supreme Court and all 13 regional federal courts of appeals called the circuit court. So that wasn't the case a couple of years ago. A couple of years ago, it was the court in D.C., the D.C. circuit, and the court in San Francisco, the Ninth Circuit, were the only two that were live streaming their cases. And now every court live stream their cases. Only a couple do video, but all of them at least do audio. So I think that's important. But what about other reforms in addition to that? You know, what were you expecting and what happened? Sure. I was expecting that the Wall Street Journal article that found that 131 lower court judges were hearing 685 cases despite a conflict of interest due to their stock ownership. I was expecting reform to come from that, and, and it did. So now we get, just like members of Congress, within 45 days of a stock transaction, we get a report from the judges on this database, and their annual financial disclosures also have to be posted online. It used to be you'd get them in a thumb drive several years after the fact, but now 
You get them online in a database, much like you do for members of Congress. And the database is still lagging a little behind. It's not totally filled up yet, but they're working on it. So I think that was really important. And the other reform that I was really hoping would pass and came very close to, got pulled at the last minute from the Senate floor, it's a bill that would make PACER free. So PACER is the system that exists where if you want to read a filing in federal court, you can go to supremecourt.gov and read every filing that at the Supreme Court for years and years and years for free. Lower courts, the 94 trial courts, the 90 bankruptcy courts, the 13 federal courts of appeals, hundreds of thousands of cases. If you just want to read a single filing, a single page of a filing, it will cost you 10 cents just to read the page on your computer screen. It's a static PDF, but they charge you 10 cents a page, which gets expensive very quickly. The judiciary makes $150 million a year from that. So there was a bill to make it free, to zero it out. And because of some concerns over how to fill in the $150 million hole with other funding, it didn't pass, but we're ramping up again, and hopefully it'll pass in this Congress because it's a tax on the American people to the tune of $150 million to make us read static PDFs, 10 cents a pop. You know, we've talked about the media keeping an eye on the Supreme Court. You and Fix the Court have kept an eye on the Supreme Court, obviously. The Biden administration conducted a review of the court that included a number of issues, including financial conflicts of interest. But there still hasn't been a sweeping set of reforms around financial conflicts and greater disclosure. There's a minimal baseline of disclosure. Can the court be reformed from the outside or does it have to be reformed from within? I think it's a combination. I really do. I think that the disclosures law where now all the disclosures have to be put online. I mean, to your point, they're bare minimum, like bare bones. It's not a lot of information, but at least they have to be put online. That was a law that Congress passed. The Supreme Court itself was actually considering putting their disclosures on supremecourt.gov, but it didn't happen or whatever. So I think it's going to take just more and more agitating and more and more ProPublica style reporting to get things done. And I think John Roberts would rather the courts police themselves and reform themselves. And he is absolutely taking advantage of all the gridlock in Congress. You know, he's more than happy that it's a divided Congress and that it's very hard to get things passed. But I think from an institutional integrity and trust perspective, if him and his colleagues continue to be bullheaded and not making any modernization and ethics changes, then the last glimmer of faith that we have in the, in the court is going to quickly fade away. Well, and that brings us, you know, in a way back to the chief justice again, John Roberts. Roberts has also resisted the idea of an outside monitoring agency, such as the Office of Government Ethics, which keeps an eye on members of the federal government and potential financial conflicts. He doesn't want an agency like that keeping tabs on the Supreme Court. Why? I mean, <laughs> the best quote is from Justice Ginsburg on that. She said in response to a Chuck Grassley, Senator Grassley proposal for an inspector general, that sounds like some sort of Soviet level Politburo or institution, which is ridiculous. But, you know, I think that he just believes that he can, that they, they can police themselves. I mean, I, I don't quite get it based on all of the evidence that we've seen. That just keeps coming out and out and out, that they actually aren't policing themselves. Exactly. And I think the other problem is, is that he potentially, you know, he doesn't want to set himself up for failure because I don't know if he has the institutional backing and forget the jurisprudential backing. He definitely doesn't have that anymore, though he would go along with like 90 percent of the conservative project. He just wouldn't do it so stridently. He doesn't have the institutional backing that I think some of his predecessors would have. So having any sort of ethics body you know, people would just flout the rules. And so what point would there be to have them? This is view. That's that's what I think. One last question for you. What have you learned about financial conflicts on today's court 
that you didn't know about or didn't understand when you first began fashioning yourself as a very astute Supreme Court watchdog? I think there's just many ways to influence the court in which money is involved that just the general public doesn't realize. It is a multi-billion with a B dollar industry influencing the justices when you think, oh, they only hear 70 cases a year. But on top of that, they're turning down 5,500 cases a year. And those are decisions in and of themselves to turn down those cases. I guess half of them are prisoners, so fine. Prisoner petitions are generally not heard by the court, so maybe only 2,700 petitions. But the rest of them, there are very high-powered, very wealthy moneyed interests that are trying to get the justices to do X, Y, or Z. Relationships are not always clear to how close the justices are to these interests, but it's something that is worth looking at, worth studying, and worth trying to reform, because if not, it's not a good situation. Just given, I mean, the quantities of money are insane. So that to me just sort of implies maybe not actual corruption, but the appearance is, is pretty bad. Gabe, we've run out of time. Thank you so much for joining us. I hope you can come back soon. Would love to. Thanks, Tim. Gabe Roth is the founder and executive director of Fix the Court, a nonpartisan advocacy group. You can follow Gabe and Fix the Court on Twitter at Gabe underscore Roth and at Fix the Court. Here at Crash Course, we believe that collisions can be messy, impressive, challenging, surprising, and always instructive. As my son Cooper showed us when I asked him to define financial conflicts. How would you explain that in your own words? When somebody owns a possession, but they have to make a decision on something else, but that decision's affected by their other possession. That's awesome. I mean, I helped you prepare that answer, (laughs) (laughs) but that's really good. Thank you, buddy. Love you. Love you. In today's Crash Course, I learned that financial conflicts of interest on the Supreme Court are glaring, that they should be addressed, but that the Supreme Court doesn't seem to have much interest right now in doing that. What did you learn? We'd love to hear from you. You can tweet at the Bloomberg Opinion handle, at Opinion, or me, at Tim O'Brien, using the hashtag Bloomberg Crash Course. You can also subscribe to our show wherever you're listening right now and leave us a review. It helps more people find the show. This episode was produced by the indispensable Anna Mazarakis, Moses Andam, and me. Our supervising producer is Magnus Henriksen, and we have editing help from Sage Bauman, Katie Boyce, Jeff Grocott, Mike Nitza, and Christine Vanden Bylart. Blake Maples does our sound engineering and our original theme song was composed by Luis Guerra. I'm Tim O'Brien. We'll be back next week with another Crash Course. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers, and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights, and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com.